Welcome to the UGA BCM podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the UGA BCM right on campus in Athens, Georgia. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. How are we doing? Good. You got a Bible? Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Where? What? Hebrews? I know. I told Heather, uh, who, I work with Heather uh, at a Beach Haven, and I, and I said, I think I'm about going through Hebrews 10. What do you think about this? And she's like, I can tell you that nobody's ever brought Hebrews up in the BCM. So but we're going for it anyway. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. 30 years ago, um, 30 years ago this semester, I was a freshman at Furman University. Any pal- anybody know what a paladin is? We didn't either. That's what we are. And I was trying to major in music education, and it turned, was not going well. Uh, it turns out if you get confused by the circle of fifths and can't sight read basic melodies, and they put you in the remedial class for the instrument that you want to major in, music education is probably not your calling. Um, so that's what was going on with me. And on a Tuesday night, um, I was in the basement of the one girl's dorm at, at, uh, at Furman, um, for for Baptist Collegiate Ministry worship, and um, was asked uh, to give a devotion, uh, read a passage of scripture, kind of give a devotion, um, kind of in the time of worship, much like what Tyler did tonight. And because I'm from rural Mississippi, Tyler had a similar accent as you, which was awesome, by the way. And um, and so I, I I read the passage, I gave the scripture. We had a great night of worship for other things, and after that experience. Uh, one of the Old Testament professors at, um, at Furman came up to me and he says, hey man, I don't, I don't know what God is doing in your life, I don't know what your trajectory is, but I do, I do feel compelled to tell you that unless, that you really need to give some consideration to being a preacher or a Bible teacher in the Word, you, I think God's given you a gift to just naturally explain and read the Bible. Now this sermon may totally suck, okay, like I just, I'll be honest with you, but I tell you that story because you never know when God is going to speak to you and completely change the trajectory of your life. Because I, in that moment, was trying to be the worship guy and was just enamored with the worship guy. And I was cannot sing, as you can hear in my voice. And I could not read music. And I did not care what a French dominant sixth was. And I, I didn't care about any of those things. But in that weakness, in that moment, God brought a person into my life to speak truth. And and now I'm doing what he said I should, should be doing. So here I go. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 is where we're going to be. I was a senior in high school. My parents gave me a car. How kind of them. It was a very nice two-door Honda Accord EX, gold, if you care to know. And it had the latest feature known as a CD player. And uh, I was slowly backing out of our carport getting ready to go play some tennis, and I, and backing out slowly down the driveway, I did not look in the rearview mirror behind me, and I ran into my dad's Ford Ranger, 1992, four-wheel drive. It was amazing. So I got out, like, great. You know, I got out. My parents were going through divorce, and my whole life was really a mess at that moment, if I'm being honest. So I was like, great, just one more thing. And so I got out, and I looked, and, like, the truck looks fine. My brand-new car looks fine. I was very grateful. Went forward, swerved out, went back down the driveway, went to play tennis, tears for fears, sunroof open, aviators on. It was, I was really hot in college, in high school. So uh, back in the day. It was so awesome. Came back two hours later, and I know, oh, in the back of the truck, I forgot to tell you, in the back of the truck, my dad had a four-wheeler, 
Um, it sound, sounds like we're pretty redneck. We really weren't. But we, we, it sounds pretty cool. We had a four-wheel in the back of the truck. So when I came back, I pulled in the driveway, and I noticed that the entire back windshield of my dad's truck is just blown to smithereens. It's just gone, right? So when I had backed it, you don't have to be a physics major to figure this out. When I backed up and hit the car, the four-wheeler, which was not secured to the floor of the truck bed, rolled forward and whoosh, blew out the glass um, from the window. Now, I mentioned my life was a bit of a mess in that moment. My parents' life was a bit of a mess in this moment. And whenever you do something wrong by your parents or across your parents, you can usually say one of two things, right? I've screwed up. I cannot tell my parents. Or I have screwed up. I need to call my parents. You really just have two, two choices. And in part... Your choice in that matter exposes what you believe about your parents in that moment. It's what you're choosing to believe about them in that moment, which choice you make. Whether it's true or not, it's what you believe, right? So are they going to be all law and no grace? Are they going to be all grace and no truth? Are they going to be trustworthy with what you tell them? Or are they going to be really weak and insecure parents and rail on you? Are they going to play the long game with your character? Are they going to be able to be both just and loving at the same time? Are they going to be able to sympathize with you at all? That's what goes on when you have wronged your parents. Those are the questions you're asking yourself, even if it's happening lightning fast. That's what's going on. So it's that dynamic that I want you um, to apply to a relationship with the Lord tonight. A.W. Tozer, an author you need to read, famously said this. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then C.S. Lewis said, well, actually, it's how God thinks of us that's infinitely most important. And our text today, Hebrews 10, 19-22 says both of those things. So I think both of these guys are right. So here's what I want to do out of this text. Okay? I want to show you two really amazing things about Jesus. And I want to show you one remarkable thing that you and I get to do as a result. Okay? Look at chapter 10, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible or an app, it's on the screen. It is. It's on the screen. Awesome. And so is the countdown. I need to get going. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and a living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now that is a whole lot of Judaism crammed into, and a lot of Christianity crammed into, yes, more Christianity than Judaism, and yet, yet, and yet kind of the same, crammed into three, 1922, four verses of Hebrews, and I wanted to take you all the way to 26 because there are actually more commands that we're supposed to do. But here's what's going on here. So, the book of Hebrews is a 
is a really robust book, and it is the author's intent. He's Jewish, he's writing to a bunch of Jews, and they're trying to figure out the relationship between a couple of thousand years of Judaism and animal sacrifice and worship in a temple and how all of that relates to who Jesus is and what he has done. And so because this author has this really robust Jewish background and because this, this group of Christians that he's writing to has this really robust Jewish background, there's a lot of robust Jewishness inside this text that he's just assuming that his original audience has everything, they know everything about what he's saying. And so there's, there's not a lot of unpacking, it's just very condensed. And you and I probably don't have a whole lot of Jewishness in our background. We've not taken the time to reflect deeply on Leviticus or any other of those weird Old Testament books that I've not deeply studied myself, if I'm, if I'm being honest. But this guy, he knows that and he's bringing it to bear. And what's so important about what he's doing, really throughout Hebrews, and he's really doing in this text, is he's saying, what I want you to understand is all of the things that you did as a Jewish person in your worship was pointing to this moment in history in the person of Jesus. Everything that we did as a Jewish people for two millennia or longer was pointing to this person of Jesus. And in particular, as you can tell, he's talking about sacrifice. He's talking about worship. Look at verse 19. He's got the word sanctuary, through the, um, so which is, that's the inner part of the temple where only the priest, one high priest, the priest of Aaron, could go into. He's talking about blood. In this case, it's the blood of Jesus, but of course, it was something different when the uh, animal sacrifices were being done. And so all of this language is there. And if you and I will do just a little bit of footnote hunting in our Bible... If we'll do just a little bit of, of reading the study notes in the big fat study Bible that the publishers make so that you'll buy another Bible later, right? If you'll just do a little bit of work, you can get a robust and rich and profound understanding, not just about the seminary stuff associated with Judaism, but about what it means and what it allows and what it permits and what it does for you. So if you permit me just a little bit of time to do this for you, you can read it in depth in Leviticus 16, but imagine a high priest. The high priest, he would present his, he would, this is what he would do. He'd take his own bull of his own, and he would kill it. Just, I'm not sure how they would do it, but he would kill it, right? He would, and he would drain the blood, the life, out of this animal, and he would collect some of it in a, in a dish or in a cup. And then, with a chain wrapped around his foot, and he's in these these uh, you know, very uh, you know, high priestly kind of robe and garb that sets him apart from everybody else. And he's got a chain wrapped around him. And he goes into, through a curtain that only he can go through, and he goes into this Holy of Holies where there is a tabernacle that, where the Ten Commandments are inside of it. And on top of it, there is a, uh, what's called the mercy seat. And he takes some of the blood in this cup and he dips his fingers in it and he sprinkles it for some reason on the east side and then on the front. And he does this as an offering for sin for himself and for his family. And that's all it covers is the sin for himself and for his family. Then he comes back outside and he's got two goats sitting there. And the goats are looking at each other like, who do you think is going to be? And it's the one on the left. And so he kills the one on the left and he drains the blood out of that goat and he puts it in a dish and he sacrifices this goat as a sin offering for the entire Jewish nation. 
And he takes the blood inside the Holy of Holies. Again, his chain is wrapped. Oh, be quiet, Siri. He's got his chain wrapped around his foot. Because if he dies in here, if he does something wrong, God strikes him. They got to drag his body out. So he takes the, the blood of the goat and he sprinkles it on the east side and on the front. And he comes back out. And then there's this other goat going, what gives? And, the, and Aaron, the priest, takes, instead of a knife, he takes his hands and he puts his hands on the goat. And he begins to confess every sin of the nation of the people of Israel for that year. I don't know if they turned in diaries. I don't know if somebody was walking around like in an HOA neighborhood taking notes about everybody's, you know, grass being off. Or I don't know. But he know, he's got enough. What they didn't do and what they should have done. And they did. And he prayed and he says, we confess this and we confess this. And it's a long, it's a long time. Let's just assume it was a bad year. It was a long time. And he prays and he is literally transferring the sin of the nation onto a goat. And there's a dude standing there when it's all over who is also in ritualistic clothing. This is his job today. He's got his, this guy's got his, he, he takes the goat that's had all the sin dumped on him and he walks out into the wilderness so far away that there's no chance in the world this goat would ever come back and he's just going to die out there. And then the guy comes back and he gets within a certain distance of the city and he's got to take all of his clothes off and burn them and then he's got a, a, an area out there they've set up for him to wash in case any of the sin of the goat got back on him and then he couldn't get into the city because he was sinful. You see what's going on here? So that is the way, that was the mechanism, that was the process by which the people of Israel would atone for their sin. First Aaron for himself and his family then for the entire nation. So the, the cost of blood is, is paid and the sin is taken as far away from them and never to return as a picture of forgiveness for the Jewish people. Every year, the seventh month, the tenth day every year. Why would they do that? What in the world would that accomplish? It accomplished four things, kind of. It would turn them away from their sin for a little while, right? It, the, the, it, doing that exposed the ugliness of their sin and it exposed, it reminded them of the holiness of God and the cost associated with it. So when they did this, they would be motivated to repent and live very holy lives for a little while. And this doing this provided just payment for the hard cost of their sin debt. They really did sin. They, they did not do things they were supposed to do. They did not do the Ten Commandments. We'll just say that was the Ten Commandments. Maybe they just prayed that, right? But, but it provided payment for that. And it provided a way to cleanse and purify the community from the infectious nature of their sin. Not only did that guy have to, when he came back in, he had to you know, take his clothes off and burn them and, and wash and bathe. But even Aaron, those amazingly expensive and beautiful priestly gowns, he had to remove and burn in case they also got tainted as a, as a picture, as an image of cleanliness, of, of washing from the infection of sin. But here's the thing that it was really communicating and really achieving for the Jewish people. Doing this ensured that God would not leave them. It ensured that God's presence would be with them. 
Now, what's not going on here? What's not going on here is human beings hoping to appease an angry God, coming up with their own system, hoping that he will accept the sacrifice of whatever goat, ram, bull that they've pulled together. It's actually the exact opposite, if you will go back and read one day when the day is slow and long. Okay? I'm realistic about Old Testament reading. Okay? The, the whole process and the, substitute, the animals themselves were provided by God. This is not human beings providing animals in order to appease an angry God. This is God providing the mechanism and the ritual and the ceremony and the actual beings for them to be able to worship Him. These sacrifices were to show the Israelites how much God wanted to stay in a covenant relationship with them. That's what he's communicating. Do you see how much it cost for me to be there? But do you see that I provided the way and the means and I want to be with you? I want to be in a relationship. I want to know you. I want to be my presence among you. I want to be with you. But even a good Jew has got to be looking at that going, okay, God is holy. I've seen you know, people get dragged out of that thing. You know, like I, there's a God in there for sure. And the bull and the, and the ram that we burned before that, that I didn't even talk about, and the goats, and the, and the sin going on to a goat, and it's just kind of comical to even think about somebody walking out. You know, like They got to know that their sin is not really being handled. That this is, there's something else going on here. And you would be right. That's what the Hebrews is all about. None of it was actually paying the debt for sin. How does a bull, how does a ceremony, how does a ritual, how does, how does a goat actually pay for sin? Why would that actually satisfy a real holy God? It doesn't. It never did. But Hebrews is saying it was all pointing all the symbol, all the ceremony, all the ritual, all the blood was pointing to this moment in history in which God would provide the perfect priest who didn't need to wear a chain around his leg to go into the Holy of Holies, who didn't need to burn his clothes and go through a ritual washing ceremony in order to enter into the Holy of Holies. It was all pointing to a time where God would provide the perfect sacrifice, not the blood of an animal, but the blood of his own son. Blood that would actually take away the sin of mankind. Um, blood that would actually remove and forgive sin. Blood that would actually pay the debt for sin. Um, that would quite literally be the expression of God's justice and his love at once for all time. That's what it was pointing to the whole time. So the, so the thing I want you to see about Jesus, that the author of Hebrews wants you to see about Jesus, is that he is the perfect priest and he is the perfect sacrifice. He lived the life that you and I could never live and he paid a debt that you and I could never pay. That is what verses 19 through 22 
are trying to communicate at its core about who Jesus is. He's the perfect priest, and he is the perfect sacrifice. So what? Well, because Jesus has now done what he's done, once and for all, you and I now have full confidence that God's presence is always with us. That was the whole point of the sacrificial system, right? He wanted to communicate. He was demonstrating them, I want to be with you. And in the person of Jesus and in the priestliness of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, we now have absolute full confidence that we have God with us. We have God's presence. We can in, and so what do we do? We enjoy it. That's what we do. That is, that's what we do. We enjoy His presence. Look at verses 19 and 22. He gets it this two ways. He wants you to draw. Just read the whole text. Let me just read the whole text again. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, why? Through the blood, like we talked about. He's inaugurated it for a new and living way through his flesh. Verse 21, because we have this great high priest, which is what I've been preaching on. Verse 22, let us draw near. Or back to verse 19, but we have boldness to enter the sanctuary. The, the thing that we get through the work of Jesus is Jesus. The thing that we get is God the Father. We have their presence. We have the Spirit. We get to live in, wrapped up in the Trinity, y'all. So how do, we, how do we engage in the presence of God? Two words, boldness in verse 19. That's the first one. You have boldness to enter the sanctuary. Listen to, listen to that verse. We have boldness to enter the sanctuary. Think about the pre-sleep stuff that we just talked about. Excuse me, I'm going through puberty while I'm on stage here in my voice. <laughs> when you think about what was going on there and think about what Jesus has accomplished, right? Because of Jesus... We can enter into this environment or into a, a time of devotion. We can enter into the presence of God with confidence and with joy. That's what boldness means, frankness, confidence, assurance, joy. You can go in, go in, go in. You don't worry, nothing to worry about. Go in. No Jew could ever do that. Aaron walked, Aaron the high priest went in with fear and trepidation, and tentativeness. If you're going to, I'm only going in there because I'm, they're making me go in. There was only fear. There was only tentativeness. We get confidence and we get joy. And because of Jesus, we are urged, he says in verse 22, we're urged to draw near. And the Jews were frequently exhorted to keep their distance. You're like You couldn't even touch the ark or you would die. Because of Jesus, all Christians are urged to come in any moment of trial, any moment of suffering, any moment of, of struggle, any moment of disobedience. And you'll get full assurance that you're going to be accepted and heard, not because you were perfect, but because Jesus was on your behalf. And Jesus, the Father looks at Jesus, looks at him, and he pardons you. He brings you into his presence. You always, always, always have access. And only the appointed priest could enter in the Holy of Holies. But you can walk right up in there because of the work of Jesus. And the author's word for this is boldness, boldness, confidence. Not cockiness. I'll come to that in a little bit, but boldness, right? And also, though, like I said, I'm coming to it. Look at verse 22. I want you to draw near with sincerity. 
Verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. By the blood of Jesus, by the life and death of Jesus, you have been cleansed and you have been washed. We don't have to go through any of those ceremonies anymore. And you have full confidence to draw near. But that confidence is not the same thing as walking in there like you own the place. That's what the author means here when he says, draw near with a true heart, a sincere heart. He means, by all means, get in there, but get in there sincerely. Several, several, uh, several years ago, about 15 years ago, I was a student pastor in Nashville. And as relationships and luck would have it, I got invited to be a part of this pre-gaming fundraiser for this big evangelist to come into town. His name was Luis Palau. He was going to come into Nashville and do one of these evangelism crusade things. And a buddy of mine was on the board that was helping bringing him in. This buddy made 10 times as much as a youth minister makes, you know, and he was like, hey, just, just come and represent your church. You can meet, you know, meet Luis and you know, we'll, we'll just, just come. We'll just come. All right, whatever. I'll come. All right. I don't belong there, but I'll come. So I put on my, my coat and tie, which is, looks ridiculous because um, for lots of reasons, and I put on my coat and tie because I can't afford a nice coat and tie, and I'm, I've got it all on. My wife's got this nice dress on, we, and we go to, if you've ever been to Nashville or seen the Nashville landscape, there's the Batman building. Okay, it's the, Bat, the Bell South building. It's where the AT&T building now. And the, the meeting that we were having a lot, it was, a, um, was at the very, very, very top of the Batman building, which was at the time the best building in Nashville. Now it's like the 18th worst, you know, or something like that. But, now, but it's because the city's tripled in the last 10 years. But it was amazing. So we took this elevator up in the Batman building, and we go in there, and there are all these really, really rich and powerful, powerful people. So the elevator opens up, and it's just this lobby, and there's all these incredibly rich and powerful people. I don't even know who they are, but I'm confident by the way that they look and talk and dress that, that they're extremely rich and powerful, and I am extremely not, right? I'm just on none of those things. Like, look at this, all right? So, like, just not going to happen. And so I'm like, and then you, so I meet, the first person I meet was a former governor of the state. I'm like, okay, I really just don't belong here. I really have nothing to do here. So I kind of get the food table and I'll get my little plate, you know, with my little crappy sandwiches. Well, I can't reach people for better sandwiches. And I've got, you know, I've got my little, I got my little cup and I just kind of introvert away, you know, over to the window to look at the view. And, you know, it's like I just read a philosophy book and I'm just taking in the scenery and I'm just by myself, very content, you know, doing my little thing. And, um, and Holly, my wife, Holly, comes over to me, and she's like, really, you did try a little bit harder. It's okay. You know, she's you know, caring for the, my, her introvert husband. And I, I'm like, like, no, really, I'd rather just stay here and, and think about Nietzsche, okay? Like, I'm just, I'm here. And, or Jesus. And so, I, so we're having this conversation, and the door, and the, and the, and the elevator door goes, boom. Okay, and so instantly, when you do that, everybody turns to look at you. So you can imagine how they felt when I stepped out. You know, the, so the elevator opens up, and this guy, the, the, and this couple walks out. And I'm telling you, everybody in there was like, wow. And she was, um, she, she, they're in their 30s, 
and uh, her hair is all just, you know, and she's clearly very artistic and creative, and she's just got all this, you know, she's clearly designer everything, and she's nine and a half months pregnant, and she's wearing a knit dress, you know, so she's like way out here, you know, but she's running there, she's rocking the thing. And her husband has got this camel leather jacket on and a matching camel leather ball cap turned sideways like it's 2000, you know, and it's like, who is the homeboy that just walked? Like, I'm judging them. That's how bad it was. Y'all, it was Toby Mac. (laughs) Y'all, I'm serious. It was Toby Mac. I'm like, I might need a heart trip. Like, I'm a total dweeb. Like, I don't even, why am I a person? Like, I don't even know what's going on. So, so here's what's going on. I walk into this room, right? And I'm like, I don't belong here. I want nothing to do with these people. They don't want anything to do with me. I don't belong here. Toby Mac walks in and is like, this room is about me. I am all that is important. And he wasn't really saying that, but that's the way it looked to me in the moment, right? And here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what the Lord is saying that Jesus has done for you to get into the sanctuary, right? Get in there. Get in there. But you don't own the place. You don't own the place. Go boldly. Go confidently. Go in full assurance in the person of Jesus on your behalf, right? Go in there because of what he has done. And if you do that, you'll come in there sincerely with full assurance and full confidence, not in who you are or what you've done, but in who Jesus is and what he has done. Y'all, the grace that bought you and gave you access, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, was costly, not cheap. If Jesus had to die to make this possible, then the holiness and the justice of God must not be just this little insignificant thing to tick off at the end, right? So our insincere approaches or attitudes toward communing with God don't line up. Please don't pray to Daddy God. It's not what Paul meant with Abba, okay? It means reverence. It means father, like, you understand what I'm saying? Please, please don't. Don't for your sake. If Jesus did that for you to have the opportunity to pray with instant access, is that really the approach we want to take? Right? Okay. Thank you for understanding my humor and my passion for Jesus at the same time. The unlimited grace that you've been given brings with it unlimited demand so draw near but do it sincerely okay so what all right this text is calling you and i to ruminate did you like that big word ruminate (laughs) to ruminate deeply and frequently on the work of jesus on the cross that is what this, 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 this is doing a lot of things. It's definitely doing that. There is not enough time in this world to think more deeply and to, on, the, on the work of Jesus on the cross. So you go to books.google.com tonight and you download James Denny's book, The Work of Christ. The, excuse me, The Death of Christ. And then you also download his other book, The Atonement and, Modern Mind, and the Modern Mind. These are free 120-year-old books that will rock you. 
And then you go buy the $35 hardback, because it's always going to be in hardback, because it's that classic by John Stott called The Cross of Christ. And you read Hebrews backwards and forwards. You need to think deeply about the cross. So deeply that Jesus said, do you remember what he said with regard to the Passover? The Passover, y'all, 2,000 years, every year, they would remember the Exodus. And then Jesus, at the moment they're, they're going to celebrate the Exodus, says, this is about me. Do it and remember me. And next time you remember the Exodus, you remember that it was pointing to me, the, the true Passover lamb. That's how deeply we need to be thinking and worshiping and reflecting on the cross of Christ. You need to be an expert on it. Secondly, this text is calling you and I to commune with God, not just execute for God. Um, we're Americans. We're hard. You're, you're, at, you're at one of the premier institutions in this hemisphere. Okay? You're probably pretty on top of things. Maybe not as much as you'd like to be or that your parents would like for you to be. But for the most part, you are hardworking. Go get them. No excuses. You, you are what you are. Okay? And I think if you're not careful as a Christian, some of that can translate over. and You, you can outkick your spiritual coverage a bit. Folks, Jesus did not die for you so that you could go and do a bunch of stuff and show him how grateful you are. He, that's not what Hebrews says, right? Hebrews says he died for you. Get in there. Commune with God. He died so you could commune with God and then honor him with your life. You're not going to honor him with your life if you don't commune with God. Look, 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 look. This is what's possible. You can work yourself in ministry and never commune with God and walk away from the faith. But if you are truly communing with God, you will always be doing enough. You will always be doing enough. So commune with God. Um, because what will happen is, you will do all that work. And I say this as someone who literally got into clinical depression and went into a, into a therapy over this very issue, okay? You will, you will begin to find your ministry or your work as your basis for acceptance to God because it's what you're doing. You're not communing, you're doing, and you're doing great, but that will actually become the basis of your acceptance. You know what's amazing about that? Is that you're actually turning into a priest in the Old Testament, Right? Instead of Jesus' priestly work and atoning death, you're looking to your own priestly work and that you've worked yourself to death. And that becomes the basis of your identity instead of you. You can't carry that weight. Your body cannot carry that weight. Your mind and your heart cannot carry that weight. Trust me. The perfect life has been lived, the perfect price has been paid. So commune with God. Get in there confidently, sincerely, 
The glory of God will not consume you because of Jesus. It will thrill you. And a life that's thrilled with the glory of God will do more than its fair share of good work for God. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you would like to know more about us, visit our Instagram at UGABCM or visit us on our website at UGABCM.org. We hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next time.